0: Welcome to the podcast series of the Notre Dame Program of Constitutional Studies. The program of constitutional studies here at Notre Dame fosters research and teaching on the philosophical principles of constitutional government and the American constitutional tradition. Enjoy today's podcast. Uh, my name is Philip Munoz. I'm the director of the Constitutional Studies Program here at the University of Notre Dame, and I'm absolutely thrilled. Uh, you can join us uh, online. Uh, we have a large audience and. I know some of you are being added here as, as I speak. Uh, my only regret is that we can't be together in person. Um, many prayers for um, uh, everyone watching. I hope everyone is, is in good health. Um, I'm absolutely thrilled. I, I have been reading uh, Professor Snead's book uh, the last few days. It's excellent. Um, and I'm thrilled uh, with the panel we put together. Uh, It should be a great event and thrilled that you can join us. Uh, Just a few thank yous and uh, a few announcements. Uh, I want to thank uh, my staff, especially Soren Hansen and Jen Smith. Soren's really the person running everything, all the technology. I'm a bit incompetent in this, so thank you very much, Soren, and thank you, Jen. Uh, An announcement, we have, uh, we just scheduled an event, in fact, this morning. um, uh, On uh, two weeks from Thursday, uh, Thursday the 29th, we're going to have two uh, Washington insiders, uh, Henry Olson from the... Um, uh, Washington Post and uh, Ray uh, Teixeira, who will be speaking on the uh, 2020 election. Mm-hmm. Join us again uh, in two weeks. And then next week, we actually have RJ Pastrito from Hillsdale College who will be lecturing on uh, the political thought of Woodrow Wilson. You can learn why Woodrow Wilson was canceled at Princeton. Uh, but today, uh, it's uh, I'm just thrilled that uh, we can be focusing on uh, one of Notre Dame's best professors, my good friend Carter Carterstein's book. Uh, we have an all-star panel. Uh, I'm gonna uh, introduce um, Lee Fernandez. Uh, we have a tradition here at the program and that we have students introduce our panelists. So Annalie Fernandez is a junior uh, a political science and pre-med uh, major and she's one of our Tocqueville fellows and Lee will introduce our panelists.
1: Professor Mary Ann Glendon is a learned hand professor of law at Harvard University. In the past, she has served as a US ambassador to the Holy See as a member of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom and as part of the U.S. President's Council on Bioethics. Her research interests focus on human rights, comparative law, religion, and culture. Her works include A World Made New, Eleanor Roosevelt and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and most recently, The Forum and the Tower, how scholars and politicians have imagined the world from Plato to Eleanor Roosevelt. Rod Dreyer is a senior editor at the American Conservative He has written for The Wall Street Journal, The Weekly Standard, The Los Angeles Times, and more. In addition, he has appeared as a political commentator on CNN, Fox, MSNBC, and other networks. He is the author of The Benedict Opinion on the Strategy Behind Preserving Faith and Traditional Values in Modern Society. His most recent book published last month is Live Not By Lies, A Manual for Christian Dissidents. Ross Douthit is an op-ed columnist for the New York Times and co-hosts the Times op-ed podcast. He was previously a senior editor at the Atlantic. He is the author of several books, including his most recent work, The Decadent Society, How We Became the Victims of Our Own Success, which examines modern Western culture. Professor Sneed is a professor of law and of political science here at Notre Dame. He is also the director of the DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture. His research in the field of public bioethics has been widely published in venues such as the Harvard Law Review Forum, the Yale Journal of Health Policy, and the Journal of Medicine and Philosophy. His latest publication is the book, What It Means to Be Human, The Case for the Body in Public Bioethics, which is the subject of our panel today. Please join me in welcoming our panelists.
2: All right. So Phil, am I up?
0: It's all, uh, we'll start with Professor and then he's going to give us a brief summary of the book, and then Great. Professor Glendan, uh, Rodrier, and Rost outfit, and then we'll give Professor Sneed a chance to respond, and then we'll open it up to questions, so please, Great. Professor Snead.
2: Thanks, thanks, Phil. First of all, I'd like to thank Professor Munoz. He is an indispensable feature at the University of Notre Dame. We are so blessed to have him here, and the programs that he runs, the Tocqueville uh, program, as well as the Khan Studies program, makes Notre Dame a, a much richer place for our students, our faculty, our staff, and For the global public square. So, we are, I just want to express my gratitude to him once again and for putting this wonderful panel together by people who I, including folks who I love and admire, my old friend, Marianne Glendon, and Rod and Ross, great, great folks, and uh, whose work I admire so much. In fact, I think I told you, Ross, that my family drove across the country. We listened to the Decadent Society, and it was literally your voice, that your dulcet tones that we heard for about 14 hours in each direction. And it was uh and it was it was weird but it was great <laughs> so it's a wonderful book so everybody should read that and obviously uh obviously rod's new book is is making a lot of waves and i'm excited to read that everybody should pick up a copy as well and i'd like to thank you Anna Lee, for your wonderful introductions of everybody and soren a uh, recent graduate who, who's uh, working with uh, professor muñoz to help support this uh, who's a fellow at, at professor muñoz's center um so it's. Uh, I'm not going to speak for very long. What I'd like to do is just to sort of set the table here and lay out the general themes of the book uh, and, then, and then enjoy the comments and reflections of my colleagues and have some good conversation and all the wonderful folks who have joined us today uh, from various remote locations. Uh, the book itself, uh, as you know, is titled What It Means to be Human, The Case for the Body in Public Bioethics. And it makes two claims. It makes a methodological claim and it makes a substantive claim. Uh, The methodological claim that it makes relates to what I take to be the richest point of entry into understanding any question of law or public policy, and that is through the lens of what I call anthropology. When I say anthropology, I don't mean the scholarly discipline. I mean what Walker Percy meant when he famously said that everyone has an anthropology. There is no not having one. If a man says he does not, all he is saying is that his anthropology is implicit, a set of assumptions he has not thought to call into question. Walker Percy was talking about the basic understanding of what a human being is, and what constitutes human flourishing. And my argument, my methodological argument in the book, is that this is the most interesting and rich point of entry. We teach all of our students here at the University of Notre Dame Law School that law is irreducibly normative. It aims at goods to be pursued and harms to be avoided. And so it's essential that our students and that our lawmakers and our judges and our policymakers understand the law at the level of that normative, foundation what the law aims to do whether those are goods that we embrace whether those are harms that we're genuinely concerned about but at a level more deeply still is the question of what the law assumes a person to be and in what constitutes our shared thriving and our individual thriving law exists for the sake of persons it exists for the protection of persons and for uh to promote their flourishing and that being so it it necessarily follows that the law has to have an ex ante premise about what and who a person is and what we owe to each other. And it's, it's the task of this book to show, first of all, that that is a, a fruitful method of understanding the law, which I believe it to be. And then I take that inductive analytic approach and I apply it to what I call the vital conflicts of American public bioethics. Now again, public bioethics is a term of art that I use in the book to refer to the governance of science, medicine, and biotechnology in the name of ethical goods. It is meant to be a species of law and public policy, not merely a field of inquiry, which is bioethics sort of more generally understood as a term. So my argument is that if you subject the vital conflicts, the conflict of the law and policy relating to the question of abortion, the law and policy relating to uh, assisted reproductive technologies, and the law and policy that touches and concerns end of life decision making, not just the decision to decline unwanted medical uh, uh, measures uh, even those that are life-sustaining but also the the relatively new uh, issue of assisted suicide if you look if you use this inductive approach and ask the question of what the law in these areas assume a person to be and assume what human flourishing is what you find is something that I take to be highly problematic and worrisome and what I argue in the book is that viewed through this lens of anthropology what you find pretty quickly is that the premises of these areas of the law closely tracks and follows what uh robert bella and habits of the heart describe as expressive individualism uh he first coined that phrase uh it was deepened and broadened and explored in interesting ways by philosophers charles taylor and a wide variety of others michael sandell uh and uh, and alistair mcintyre as well uh and the argument is that These areas of the law assume that a person and that the the fundamental personal reality is the atomized individual self. That is the that's where the individualism piece comes in. um, Whose highest flourishing is 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 expressed is is achieved through the interrogation of the interior of the self. uh, uh, To find one's own authentic possibly transgressive individualized truths and then to express those truths and to configure one's life and one's life course accordingly with the pursuit of those goals in mind. So it's a purely endogenously created, that is created from within, set of destinies and goals that come about through the lonely individual atomized self interrogating and introspecting in the interior of, of, of his or her uh, consciousness. And this is, this is a, a vision of the person that should be recognizable to Americans. It was certainly recognizable in the studies that Robert Bella undertook, uh, in terms of doing hundreds of interviews with Americans who taught, who understood their lives through this lens. And I, in the book, I, I try to to, to to construct a sort of an intellectual genealogy where this came from, looking to uh, really the work of Charles Taylor, uh, who has a really interesting series of observations and reflections in in a number of books that really roots it into you know, reaching all the way back to uh Rousseau and 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 some of the innovations in Rousseau's philosophical reflections and then sort of generalized through uh the romantic movements the literary and artistic movements and then become sort of personalized um, in the 1950s and 1960s where the mode sort of and adopted outside the artistic community and shared by normal people here in the United States and for whom sexual expression becomes an essential mode of that of that expression the expressive individualist anthropology as I said, sees the atomized uh, and individual isolated self as the fundamental unit of reality that identifies people with their wills uh, and their desires. Uh, and so it, it strongly prioritizes cognitive powers and regards other aspects of, of human life, the body for example, as merely instrumental to the pursuit of the, of the projects of the will. And Moreover, um, not only is the body instrumental towards those goals and sort of accidental and instrumental to those goals and therefore it's sort of dualistic philosophically speaking, but also it regards other human relationships as instrumental to those goals. It regards um, our our, our relationship to nature more broadly as extractive and instrumental uh, towards the projects of the will and even the deepest and most intimate personal relationships, the relationships of family uh, is viewed through this lens. This atomized, individualized, expressive individualist lens. It rejects conceptions of what philosophers call teleology, namely that the natural world and the natural phenomenon that we observe have any value in terms of uh, guiding our understanding of the world and what we are and what we should be. Um, and 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 it's this it's this last piece, what Alistair McIntyre calls sort of forgetfulness of the body, that makes this area uh, this form of anthropology uniquely unsuited to govern public bioethics as a foundation for law and policy because public bioethics is fundamentally about the fragility the neediness the the subjection to natural limits the vulnerability and the mutual dependence that we all experience as inexorable realities of our lives precisely because we are we enter the world and live and experience ourselves and others as living bodies and dying bodies for that matter as well and so with this sort of flattened reduced anthropology of expressive individualism which by the way does you know express important truths about human particularity and human freedom i'm not meaning to say that it's there's no truth at all in that account of what we are it's certainly not a full account of what we are and when you integrate this as a foundation for the law of abortion the law of uh, assisted suicide and end of life decision making and the law of assisted reproduction what you say what you see in these legal contexts is a kind of framing first of all of uh, a world of strife of isolated strangers locked in in a struggle, or perhaps in collaboration, but more frequently in struggle with one another to pursue their own individual projects. And we see that obviously in the context of abortion where the relationship of mother and child is is dissolved into a a struggle, a zero-sum conflict between two strangers, between uh, a a woman who has the status of legal personhood and something that's less than a person. And uh, that framing itself doesn't capture the lived reality of parenthood, of family, of human life, and as a result, it distorts and corrupts the law that grows off of that or grows from that, from that analytic foundation. The same is true of assisted reproductive technologies, which is characterized primarily by the absence of law rather than uh, legal strictures. But it creates a certain kind of freedom that reflects the freedom of expressive individualism. And then the same is true where we project the image of the flourishing cognitive mind at the top of its of the top of its powers onto very vulnerable and needy uh, folks in the context of end-of-life decision-making, and it corrupts and bends and distorts the legal principles and doctrines that emerge from that. And so what I argue is that we need what I call an anthropological corrective, drawing upon the work of the wonderful Alastair McIntyre, trying to think about what's necessary for the flourishing of embodied beings for whom this kind of neediness and finitude is an is a integral part of our experience, and to, and to be able to see our unchosen obligations, which don't exist through the lens of expressive individualism, to vulnerable others, most notably the elderly, children born and unborn, and the disabled. Uh, And so looking to Alistair's thought on this, who doesn't really, hasn't ever really written about bioethics, um, uh, looking at his work in the book, Dependent Rational Animals, and his reflection on what's necessary for the flourishing of embodied beings, I draw upon what he calls the virtues of acknowledged dependence um, which are necessary to build up a um, uh, what he calls the networks of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving, which are unintelligible through the lens of expressive individualism. And the virtues that he points out uh, that are necessary for this include the virtues of just generosity, hospitality, uh, what he calls misericordia, accompanying accompanying others in their suffering. Those are the those are the acknowledged virtues of of uncalculated giving. There are also virtues of the, of of graceful receiving the principle of which is the the, the number one of which, of course, is gratitude. Uh, Gratitude, openness to the unbidden, solidarity, uh, uh, tolerance of imperfection, uh, uh, honesty, respect for the dignity of others. And you could really summarize all of these virtues under the aegis of the goods of authentic friendship, where we learn, first of all, we benefit as embodied beings from the support of these networks, people making our good, their good, without any hope of compensation or recompense. Um, And then, so we depend on these for our survival, but then we sort of learn to become the thing that we're supposed to be by becoming active participants in these networks of uh, uncalculated giving and graceful receiving um, and uh, become what what we're meant to be, which is to say, as embodied beings, we're made for love and friendship. And I argue for the reintegration of these goods and principles into the foundations of law and public policy so that they can fill out the lived reality of those areas and allow us to care for those who are especially vulnerable um, uh, whose lives are touched by, by all of these areas. So that's kind of a long-winded uh, account of what the book says. Um, and with that, I will turn the, the, the conversation back over to Phil and to hear from my wonderful interlocutors.
0: Thank you very much, Carter. Uh, Professor Glendon, you're up next.
3: Thank you. Good afternoon, everybody. I have to say this is such a pleasure to be participating in this discussion, especially since this work of Carter's is a natural outgrowth of work that he and I participated in many years ago with the Presidential Council on Bioethics. And I'm looking forward to the discussion, not only because Carter's book is such a clear presentation of the law governing these three areas, assisted reproduction, assisted suicide, and abortion. And in fact, uh, uh, much of American law is affected by his uh, uncovering of the implicit images behind that bo- those three bodies of law. Uh, but I think that the, the greatest, even for someone like myself who has studied these areas, I think uh, it was a revelation to me to see how he uncovered, exposed, examined, and critiqued the underlying assumptions, the underlying pictures that we have in mind when we talk about the difficult issues. Now, according to Carter, we would do better thinking about all these issues if we kept in mind the fact that human beings have bodies. Now, I have to admit that Um, This body business, Carter, is a bit of a challenge for me as the descendant of Yankee Congregationalists and Irish (laughs) Janss, so I'm going to do my best. (laughs) I have three preliminary observations about Carter's thesis. One has to do with the fact of dependency, which is an aspect of what Carter calls embodiment, a very important aspect. The second concerns the puzzle of how it is that ethical theory and law comes to pay so little attention to such obvious aspects of human existence as dependency and embodiment. And the third is a reflection, a worried reflection, an anxious reflection on Carter's belief that we can turn this thing around. So a few thoughts about dependency. In Carter's critique of the excessively individualistic concept of personhood, that has been so influential on bioethics, he occasionally mentions its neglect of dependency. And the more I think about that point, the more important it seems to me to his thesis. How can a bioethics built on a concept of the individual as free and self-determining, how can that kind of bioethics help us with the hardest questions that nearly all of us face in that area in view of the fact that nearly all of us spend significant parts of our lives in situations where we are not free and self-determining or only partially self-determining. We begin in the longest period of dependency of any mammal. Then as adults, we spend most of us, much of our lives in relationships where we depend on others and others depend upon us. And with increased longevity, more and more of us spend more of our lives as dependent or partially dependent elderly persons. And as much as we like the idea, and and Carter is right, we love the idea of the free self-determining individual, not many of us can live that way all the time. And by the way, that's just as well, because as Aristotle teaches us in the politics, the man who is completely self-sufficient is either a beast or a god, So I'm easily convinced by Carter's critique of the image of personhood that underlies much of bioethics, which leads to my second observation, which is really a question. How do we account for the influence of expressive individualism, to use Carter and Alistair's term, on certain areas of the law when it is so out of whack with lived realities? I don't think that we can blame it all on trickle down from philosophers or from the habits and attitudes of elites. I fear that the good part of the answer is closer home and what Ross calls the decadent society uh, in the massive social experiment that was undertaken in several Western countries in the late 20th century. That experiment had many causes, but The intersection of two of them was particularly fateful, in my view. The separation of sex from procreation with the aid of the birth control pill and the less well-known demographic phenomenon known as the marriage squeeze. What is the marriage squeeze? That's what happens when there is a shortage of males or females in the usual age range for marriage in a society. And that's what happened when the unusually low birth rates during World War II were followed by the unusually high birth rates in the baby boom after the war. Now, when those babies, think about the dates here, when those babies entered the dating scene, when was that? The mid-1960s. There were not enough boys born during the war years to provide husbands for the usual age range, one to three years older, and for nearly two million girls who were born in the first year of the baby boom, first three years of the baby boom. That was enough of a deficit to play havoc with all the demographic indicators. It was enough to play havoc with traditional patterns of behavior in the areas of sex and marriage and family life. And it played more than a trivial role in the sexual cultural revolution that followed. What is particularly interesting here from the point of view of public bioethics is the large increase in childless households. Today, with birth rates right now at their lowest in many decades, it's not surprising, is it, that the dependent population now includes a much smaller proportion of children and a much larger proportion of disabled and elderly persons than ever before in our history. And as Carter has shown so clearly, one of the great insights in his book, at least for me, was neglect of the interests of children is a striking feature, not only of the law governing abortion in the case of children unwanted by adults, but of assisted reproduction in the case of children wanted by adults. And now I come to my last observation, which concerns Carter's heroic effort to promote a better bioethics through a more realistic anthropology. I very much want to believe, as Carter does, that there just might be enough people open to persuasion to make that happen. So I hope that he and Rod and Ross will talk me out of the concerns that I have on that score. Carter writes of, and I'm quoting here, This firm belief that we can govern ourselves wisely if we become the kind of people who can make each other's goods our own. Well, that's a big if. It's not that I don't think human beings can become better. We Christians have staked quite a lot on that proposition. It's that just as we can constitute ourselves for the better through our actions and decisions individually and politically, we can also constitute ourselves for the worse through our actions and decisions individually and collectively. And so as time goes on, actions and decisions make us into the kind of persons we are, and they make us collectively into the kind of society that we bring into being. So my question is, how much of a toll have the actions and decisions of Americans over the past 50 years taken on our moral ecology? Carter's pins a great deal of hope to what he believes are shared values and to the power of persuasion. And the vision of personhood that he offers us is indeed persuasive, as well as truer to lived experience than the models that he is critiquing. But one can't help wondering whether the train has left the station, or as Walker Percy put it, whether God has at last removed his blessing from the USA, where even unbelievers once admitted that if it was not God who blessed the USA, then at least some great good luck had befallen us. I'll just conclude by saying that those concerns I've just expressed in no way affect my enthusiasm for the vision that Carter so eloquently places before us. And I can think of no better way to start trying to shift the probabilities in a better direction than by taking Rod Dreher's advice in his new book. Start telling the truth. And that's exactly what Carter need has done. Thank you.
0: Well, that is a wonderful transition to uh, our next speaker, uh, Rod Dreher.
4: There, can you hear me now?
0: We can hear you now.
4: Good. Uh, thank you Marianne, for that and uh, I'm afraid though that if you're depending on Roger and Ross doubted to lift you out of the slough of despond You may, you may, be, you may be in trouble. It's, uh, it is this is these are uh, salad days for cultural pessimists uh, but one of the the most important things that I learned from Carter's book is that in my own work uh, in recent years. I have focused mostly on what it happens to a civilization that loses God Carter's book makes me wonder what happens to a civilization that loses man, uh, and it's very powerful in, in a way—a very powerful analysis of what the the effects are in, in terms of our bioethics, or matters of life and death, and our law, and which is an un, which undergirds our civilization when we lose what it means to be fully human. I'm reminded of a story that I, I tell in my new book, but uh, it's it's really prophetic, I think. It's something that happened to me when I was in Budapest uh, a year or two ago doing some research for this book. I was on a tram riding through the city with a young Catholic, uh, my translator. She had been married four years, had a young son at home. She was telling me how difficult it is for her in, in her life in Hungary today just to talk to friends about the things she's struggling with as a wife and a mom, even her Catholic friends have trouble relating to what she's saying. She said, I, I start telling them about the things I'm, the difficulties I have. And the first thing they say to me is, oh, leave your husband, put your kid in daycare. Everything will be great. Be, you be you. She said, I try to tell them, I, I'm happy being married. I'm, I'm happy being a mom, but it's not happiness all the time. And I just want to help, to talk to you, to help me find out a way to bear the struggle of of being a wife and a mom, and she was really struggling, my friend, to articulate what she wanted to say, and I looked at her and said, it sounds like you're struggling for the right to be unhappy. She said, that's exactly it. Where did you get that? Well, I showed her it was from Brave New World, where this is the thing that the totalitarian, the dystopian society in Brave New World grants to everybody, perfect pleasure all the time. You don't have to worry about the body and uh, the rebel the dissident in this world is a man john the savage who tells the world controller that he's fighting for his right to be unhappy that's a very very difficult cell in our society today in our technological society where you know emotive expressive individualism as carter says is at the center of how we think about everything Um, in a situation like that in a cultural condition such as ours the body and all of its travails is an obstacle to liberty. That's how it's perceived. And that—that that is the water in which we all swim. I, uh, There may be somebody watching here, a reader of my blog, who emailed me earlier today when I promoted this, this meeting on my blog. He said that he's a high school teacher. He said that none of his students, even the evangelical Christian ones in his class, understand what's wrong with expressive individualism. Uh, they can't even grasp that there might be anything problematic with it. In a similar way, a professor told me once that he can't get his students in his college classes to understand why Brave New World is actually a dystopia. We shouldn't want to live like that. And that's because expressive individualism and hedonism it has become I think, come to the center of American life. And that's the story we tell ourselves. That, and, and this is a story that is... Repeated over and over again in our popular culture that to become truly who you are is to be freed of any unchosen obligation, even your own body that gets in the way of your will. Um, that's, I think, why transgenderism. You don't bring up transgenderism in the book, Carter, but I it could have you could have brought it into the book because. Uh, It also talks about body and nature and limits, transgenderism, and how it can be overcome, they believe, and advocates believe, by technology and will. I I think that this is why transgenderism has been so quickly accepted by this society, uh, is because of the anthropology of expressive individualism. It's also why I think euthanasia is, uh, is going to be well accepted, why we probably won't get very far on abortion, even if god willing roe v wade is overturned but i I think that anything that challenges the anthropology of expressive individualism people not only oppose it but they just don't understand it i think the heart of your critique carter and this is what i got most out of it is when you quote alistair mcintyre who says and you quote him saying this i can only answer the question what am i to do if i can answer the prior question of what story or stories do i find myself apart There's so much wisdom in that, because, as I was saying earlier, the stories that we tell ourselves in this society are all stories in which individuals, brave individuals, have fought against uh, those who would hold them back and hold them down and fence them in. I think, frankly, we're going to have to tell better stories in this society. Uh, And this is, you talk about law and how we have to reform the law, it's absolutely an important project. But it can't be the law alone or politics alone that that do this, because these things are really, I think, downstream from culture. We have to tell better stories that more reflect and better reflect the truth of who we are. I think of a story, another story I tell in Live Not By Lies about Camilla Bendova. She is a philosopher, an older woman now in Prague. She and her late husband Václav were leaders with Václav Havel in the Czech resistance. She and Václav uh, Benda were the only Christians in that circle. And when I, when I was in her apartment in Prague asking her how she and her late husband raised six children to be faithful Catholics uh, in the most atheistic country in Europe under the pressure of Soviet-style communism, one of the things she told me was that she read to her kids all the time two hours a night at least i said what did you read she said i read them the old myths i read them classic literature and i read them a lot of tolkien tolkien i said why tolkien she said because we knew that mordor was real and we knew that the story of the elves and the dwarfs and all the hobbits all those fighting mordor that was our story too well, what camilla was really telling me is that part of the resistance to totalitarianism was not only pointing out what is bad in the world and what needs to be changed, but also feeding the moral imagination of young people and reminding them of who they are and who we are as human beings, not only as Christians, but as human beings, and giving them a a strong foundation in the good, the true, and the beautiful. Finishing your book, Carter, that it reminded me of the role that people like, like like me, the role we have to play in this project you outline, I don't know anything about the law. You're a law professor, you're analyzing the law, but I can see that we're running on parallel tracks and trying to help remind people in this expressive, individualistic, decadent society about who we really are. Um, I think that we have to, uh, in, in my book, Benedict Option, and I'll finish on this, uh, I quote Christian Smith, one of your colleagues there at Notre Dame, a sociologist of religion, talking about how the church, uh, what it has to do to recover from this decadent uh, society that is saturated with expressive individualism. He says, quote, churches should offer a true alternative transcendent story. If they can't do that, if they remain saddled with moralism, then they better hang it up now. What he's saying there is the church has to work symphonically uh, with those who are laboring in the field of law those who are laboring in the field of journalism, those who are laboring in the creative fields to tell our story in better and more persuasive ways. I'll end by saying that it I was, was really a wonderful serendipity that I got in the mail this week, a new book called Alexandria by an English writer named uh, Paul Kingsnorth. It's a novel, he's not a Christian, but it's a novel set in the post-apocalyptic future And it turns out it's a novel about the body. Now here is this man, not a Christian writer, but he's someone who pays close attention to the environment and what it means to be an embodied creature living in England. And he's written this amazing story about why we need to resist the totalitarianism of bodilessness and why the body matters. This man, King's North is working with us, uh, uh, Carter, and he it's so powerful, the story he tells. We need to encourage people like him, and I'm grateful for, for people like you who, can, who show people like me why it matters in the law, why the story of the body, these stories we tell ourselves, the stories of which we are a part really do matter, and, and there really are matters of life and death. So on that, I'll turn it over to Ross. Thank you
5: um thank you for the for the handoff rod um and thank you carter for writing such a terrific book i'll just quickly second or third everyone else's comments and say that it's a wonderful synthesis of um philosophy history and legal analysis and it's both um i think it's it's both a just sort of a purely incredibly useful, purely descriptive account of where American public policy stands on bioethical issues. And, uh, you know, obviously I think, I would think a compelling case for where we've gone astray and what a better fusion of bioethics and the law would look like. Um, And I'm gonna try, I guess I'll follow Professor Glendon slightly in offering three quasi observations. And I'll try and follow Rod, who was actually, I think by Rod's standards, kind of optimistic. In, in, his, in his comments with all that talk about how we can tell better stories and, you know, communism fell, so why not expressive individual powerful, uplifting, and upbeat, Rod? So I don't, know, I don't know where this idea of gloomy pessimism from you comes in. Um, but I'll try and be a little optimistic too, or rather with each observation, I'll try and offer a, a mix of uh, reasons for optimism, and reasons for pessimism. Um, the first observation is, I think, a maybe a slightly different take um by no means mutually exclusive on Professor Glendon's comments about sort of this distinctiveness of the baby boom era and what it's meant for our society today and sort of its philosophical underpinnings. Um, and I agree with everything the professor said about sort of demographic changes and changes in married life, changes in family life having... Um, effects on the growth of the philosophy that uh, Carter outlines in his book. I also think though that you can be maybe even a little more reductive and just say that the period in which expressive individualism conquered America was a period that combined unprecedented health and unprecedented wealth. Um, uh, Both both the riches of the post-war boom and the sort of success of modern medicine at the time in, Conquering all manner of diseases in a relatively short amount of time were sort of brute facts about that period that had no parallel before in human history. And what they seem to have created philosophically is a kind of what you might call a bias towards um, Gnosticism, where the combination of health and wealth for an extremely large share of especially the American population made it possible as never before for large numbers of people to stop thinking about their bodies, I guess, right? That not, you know, not permanently um, in the sense that they all as the baby boom generation is today would ultimately grow old and die. But for a time you had this incredibly large young generation that was enjoying a combination of prosperity and physical health that had no prior parallel. And so maybe it shouldn't be surprising that a philosophy that emphasized the godlike aspects of human nature, which you know are real in the sense that you know we're made in the image of God, there are godlike elements um, to human nature, even if they aren't the controlling traits. Um, that 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 kind of philosophy would become particularly appealing in that era, um, and if you wanted to be um, if you wanted to be in a weird way sort of optimistic out of pessimism um, from that analysis, you would say, well, a few things have changed from that era to this one. Um, one is just the simple fact that, you know, a Western society has grown old in ways that, you know, sort of qualify as decadence under my definition and have all sorts of bad consequences. But one, possibly positive consequence is that, uh, you know, the reality of mortality as a shadow over, you know, what was once the sun-kissed, you know, permanently youthful baby boom generation is a kind of collision with the realities that expressive individualism denies. Um, And when you combine that reality with, you know, starker realities like the pandemic that we're all living through, it's possible that, you know, just the turning cycles of history um will give our society sort of a stronger reminder than people had between let's say 1964 and 1995 of the kind of the inescapability of weakness the inescapability of embodiment um that is sort of essential to understanding human nature and essential to to carter's to carter's thesis Um, and you know again that's not that's not optimism in the sense that I'm saying. You know, death waits for us all, <laughs> right? And but you know, the, having there's more, perhaps more memento, more of a memento mori for Western society, sort of hovering behind our shoulder right now than there was 50 or 60 years ago. And if we think there are sort of salutary effects of a memento mori, we shouldn't assume that that's all all bad. Um, so that's one point. And sort of to to sort of Shift from there to the second point. I mean, I think one one notable thing that you've seen in the sort of COVID debates, right, is this. There's been a kind of expressive individualism of the right, um, which manifests itself, I think, you know, sort of most notably just in the last couple weeks in the kind of you know, I've got my medicines and I'm going to conquer this disease attitude of the of the president of the United States. Um, And I think that gets at sort of a larger point that struck me reading Carter's narrative, which is that while on the specific issues that he talks about um, on bioethic, on the specifics of bioethics, the Sneed position is concentrated on the political right. Overall, the American political right contains an incredibly strong expressive individualist streak that creates, I think, sort of a limiting factor on the capacity of the Sneedian worldview, if you will, to sort of become the dominant worldview on the political right, and indeed, to the extent that sort of conservative um, or sort of non-individualistic bioethical positions have political purchase, they're usually framed in their own way in sort of individualistic language and the language of sort of competing rights and um, and the the issues, you know, the the fact that conservatives, pro-lifers have sort of maintained some kind of political um, resilience on abortion doesn't mean that the country has this sort of capacious view of um, the value of embodied life. It's more that that's an issue where sort of you seem to have a clash of individualisms that keeps people in an individualist society on the fence. So that would be, again, a sort of pessimistic view, right? But if you wanted to be more optimistic, you would say that in fact, you can look on the political left and see, you know, especially around issues of ecology and the environment and sort of how people relate to technology, which I think has its own role to play in this kind of Gnostic culture we inhabit. You know, there, there are elements of a Snedian worldview present on the political left um, as well. And while it seems, I think, unlikely in the current dispensation, it's not impossible. You know, I move back and forth between uh, left-wing and right-wing <laughs> worlds, and you know, there it, it seems to me that there are aspects of sort of the more capacious view that Carter has in mind that are present in different pieces of our political coalitions, and it's not completely impossible to imagine them being put back together. Not in the next ten years, but maybe in the next hundred um and then the final point just quickly is also sort of a a question maybe for carter which is that the book talks a bit about some you know european issues issues of euthanasia and the sort of low country experience comes up but i would be interested to hear more from you or someday read more from you on um both how the sort of american model the expressive individualist model compares to what you might call the sort of Catholic Europe model. Um, because if you look at, uh, and Professor Glenda's written a bit on this, but if you look at, I think Southern Europe especially, um, there is a somewhat similar, but also somewhat different approach to these issues that prevails, especially around bioethics, surrogacy and debates debates like that. So I'm I'm interested in that comparison. I'm also interested in the comparison to China, which seems to have a, um, it's own sort of radically different conception of bioethics, uh, which is, I think, further from certainly from a Christian perspective um, and is likely to become influential globally in various ways over the next 50 years. Um, and um, so, yeah, so I'm sort of curious, you know, now or some other time about Carter's thoughts on on those alternative models. and. I'll leave things there. Thank you so much for listening.
0: Thank you so much to our panelists. Uh, uh, I'm gonna let uh, Professor Sneed uh, address some of the comments uh, as he likes and uh, let me encourage all of you who are watching, um, uh, you can use the raised hand function and we'll take questions from from everyone uh, in just a minute. But uh, Carter, we, we had questions. Uh, uh, Professor Glendon asked if uh, the train has left the station, it's, it's too late to, Maybe recapture a more sensible bioethics from uh, an embodied, or bioethics that uh, is more in tune with our embodied nature. And then uh, Ross just asked uh, some comparisons with some international questions. You take take either those sure. or yeah, no, sure.
2: I, I uh, first of all, I'm just so grateful for the generosity and the richness of all the comments and the attention to the to the themes of the book that these very busy and very wonderful people uh, contributed. Uh, I'll, I'll just take one piece of each each person, and then I w- I'm anxious to move on to the conversation amongst ourselves, but also our wonderful guests who have tuned in. Uh, first of all, as to the optimism pessimism point, I, I can't. My my view is we don't really it doesn't really matter. I mean, we don't have any other choice other than to press ahead and to fight for the good, the true, and the beautiful. Whether we win or we lose, you know, that's a matter of prediction. But I I I, I try not to think about. Uh, the likelihood of success or not. I try to think about focusing on what we have to do and we don't have a choice, right? Whether we, our likelihood of success doesn't dictate our, it might dictate strategic choices in the short term, but it doesn't dictate our overall commitment. And I know that no one was suggesting that, but I just wanted to, just to say, you know, sometimes when you get knocked down the hardest, that's when you realize, okay, there's no other option here besides fighting and, and fighting for, as I said, the true, the good, and the beautiful. Now, one of the things that marianne said that i thought was important um well, all of it was important but the thing that it's interesting is what the question of is this possible is the question of whether or not we can actually be friends with each other right and there's re, there's grounds for uh pessimism on that front with respect especially with respect to social media i've been involved a lot in the in the confirmation uh hearings of my very dear friend and co- colleague judge amy coney barrett and what you see in that world is not encouraging about the possibility of non-tribal uh, friendships emerging, but it's important. It seems to me, and I try to make this case in the book that the things that we have to do, the practices that lead us to the possibility to, to, to raising our gaze upward from the interior self are practices that take you outside of yourself and the practice that does that in the most um, direct and, and comprehensive way, it seems to me, is the, is the, is the practice of being a parent. And that's why it's worrisome uh, to hear about the the rise of childlessness uh, it's be, it's becoming a parent that transformed me into a self-involved, I mean, I'm still a terrible person, but I'm a I'm a less terrible person than I was before, by virtue of the fact that it really doesn't draw you out of yourself in a way, and there's a kind of uncalculated giving towards one's child that transforms your way of thinking about everybody that you interact with. And this this comes up in kind of a funny way. I mentioned it in the book, and this relates to Rod's point about the importance of art uh, as a witness. You know, So in Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters movie, at the end of the movie, the guy, Richard Dreyfuss, and I don't want to spoil it for our viewers, but I'm going to, the guy uh, is obsessed with aliens and the aliens show up and he decides, this is a family guy with kids and a wife. He just runs onto the UFO and goes off into the the galaxy and leaves his family behind. And as a dad, I watched that. I'm like, what on earth is this guy doing? And it turns out Steven Spielberg himself in an interview said, I would have never written the ending that way if i had had children at the time I was writing the screenplay. I, I there's I had the freedom of youth to not be connected or attached to anything, and that's why it made sense for that character to do that in that moment. And then there's an even sort of funnier example in the television series, The Office. Pam Beasley, one of the protagonists, is talking about how becoming a parent has transformed her. And she says, you know, I used to watch Pulp Fiction and I would see the Gimp and I would think it was funny, the sort of bondage slave that emerges from the basement, and then now I think about that. Gimp is somebody's child, and it's funny in the moment, but it also is extraordinarily telling in that the the, the pedagogical significance of parenthood is an essential feature of 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 healing ourselves in our in our communities and our polity. And the fact that that's a problem, the fact that people aren't having children, the more childlessness I see, uh, is is worrisome on that front. In response to Marianne, back to Rod. I mean, I really do agree that it's essential that art t- change hearts and minds and the way we saw that obviously in the major points of inflection in our history uncle tom's cabin you know it, doing changing the heart of people in a way that that beautiful speeches by abraham lincoln no matter what phil thinks uh would not be as 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 compelling um and uh and tolkien is beautiful in its way also because there's genuine selflessness in the lord of the rings story that that is jarring to modern sensibilities the idea you know when frodo and sam plunge into mortar with every expectation this is it they're not gonna they have to do this for people that they'll never see and won't ever be able to be uh, you know reunited with it's there's something jarring and kind of foreign about that level of selflessness selflessness that is inspiring uh and i think about prophetic witness of people practicing radical hospitality and the person that always comes to my mind is mother Teresa. the idea of of a, like as a sort of countercultural shock to the system of someone devoting their life to others in a way that just doesn't make sense to the, to the modern sensibility as a kind of inspiration um, for, for, for transformation of, of, of culture. And then finally to, to Ross, I, I, um, it's an interesting question. I mean, I, th- I think I agree with you. And I, I think, I mean, Ross, I was so excited about your turn to, to sort of constructing a, a, what politics should look like and, and right before everything kind of came apart there <laughs> you know with with the uh, in terms of thinking about working people and religious people and the the sort of um this is crass and inadequate but like the sort of social conservatives and and, and economic liberals finding common cause with one another something sort of more communitarian looking that we you would think you'd see in Europe with the, with the, the history and tradition and political movements they have there. By the way, I haven't read it yet, but my understanding is Pope Francis's uh, Fratelli Tutti is pretty, it resonates a lot with the arguments that, that, that I try to make in the book. And in, in Pope Francis, I think we see someone who at least tries to, in terms of his discussion of the throwaway culture and our interconnectedness to one another, um, is, is influential in a positive way, uh, in trying to change hearts and minds on this point. But to, to, to your narrow question, Rod, the one thing that I, I mean, I, I worked when I was with Marianne at the President's Council on Bioethics at UNESCO, I represented the US government, I negotiated with people from China, I negotiated with people from Catholic Europe, Southern Europe, and the Netherlands and elsewhere. And the one thing that, that was constantly distressing to me was even in the examples where there was genuine commitments to solidarity, genuine commitments to um, sort of community and unchosen obligations, almost all of them were not pro-life. Almost all of them were still supporting abortion. Almost all of them still supported embryo-destructive research or forms of assisted reproduction that are dehumanizing and destructive. And they almost and and, and you you even saw you know Germany the, the the courts make a turn in away from their embryo protection act, away from you know legal structures that have been put in place in reaction to the terrible history of that of that country. And as people kind of forget about it, uh, I feel I worry that our influence as the United States through Roe and and other other uh, legal authorities and political actions that we take, we infect our, our friends across the pond. And even people from Latin America tell me all the time, they say, whenever you guys do something like, uh, you know, wh- whenever you have a Supreme Court decision that is, that is, uh, that cuts against the principles of solidarity and human dignity that I'm talking about, it it's just a matter of time before that comes into our own countries and our own courts adopt it in a kind of reflective way. And so we infect our colleagues with our, Reductive expressive individualism. And Mary Marianne knows obviously a whole lot more about this than I do, but I, you know, but I, I, I wonder if she sees it the same way. So I'll stop there, and Phil, you you can proceed as you see fit. Okay,
0: thank you very much. Um, again, please use the raise uh, hand function, um, and uh, we'll try to get to as many questions uh, as we can. We can go on uh, as long as we need to, especially since my only plan for the evening was to watch. Close encounters of the third kind.
2: uh, Now it's ruined. so
0: No need to do that. Uh, (laughs) um, I also want to encourage, uh, Carter, you've prompted many people in the chat room to talk about how terrible Carter would be or not without kids. Please feel free to leave that in the chat room. What what stays in the the chat room stays in the chat room. Uh, Evan H., um, Evan, if you could unmute yourself and introduce yourself, and you can go ahead and ask your question.
6: Yeah, hi. Um, I'm here because of Rod Dreher, Um, I just read on his blog about this meeting. I'm a Baptist pastor in Calgary, Alberta. And I was reading Alan Jacobs of Baylor, and he, uh, this past week, wrote, for the past hundred years or so, we have had a vast, multifarious culture industry devoted to the critique of individualism. Individualism, he says, describes a now-vanished world has any dominant social ethos, any regnant model of the self in the world ever died as quickly as individualism has, for indeed it has gone with the world. And Jacobs instead observes an increasingly widespread abandonment of individualism in favor of group identities, amorphous bodies of people with the same sexual orientation or gender identity or race or ethnicity. And my question is, has expressive individualism died the death that Jacobs claims?
2: So, so Phil, did you want me to respond to that? Yeah, so thank you, Evan, for the question, and thank you for tuning in. Um, I don't think that expressive individualism has died in the domain of public bioethics uh, at all. Um, I think, especially if we take the examples that I use in the book, the framing of these questions, the sort of prioritization of, of, of human flourishing and, uh, and, and even the role of government agreement on the left and right that there's certain conditions of freedom that must obtain for people to realize the, the genuine, authentic, internal truths that they discover themselves influences very much. I mean, we're, the way we talk about abortion now is still uh, between the atomized individual strangers of the mother and 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 the child she's carrying it's not viewed through the lens of parenthood it's not in terms of not just with respect to what might be owed to the baby in the womb but also what's owed to the mother who's facing a, a situation and the, the claims and the summons to assistance that follow from really embracing the categories of mother child parent community nation and seeing the interconnectedness that that uh, and and uh, that, that all obtains when you when you augment the anthropological premises that we Operate according towards now. Um, it's still it's still a zero sum conflict, um, and and it's and so I, I'm not uh, I'm not as convinced that the individualism vanished in that respect. The, the 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 If you read the judicial opinions, if you read the the political debate, it's still framed as a, a clash among atomized individual selves, with cert, with the priority going towards the one who wants to uh, interrogate. Uh, uh, her interior uh, self to track her own destiny, unencumbered by natural encumbrances that don't affect men who wish to make the same kind of choices, then she won't be able to participate as equally in the social and and cultural uh, life of the country. So, if you, as far as abortion jurisprudence goes, I, I don't, I, I don't uh, think that individualism has gone at all. I think it's all same. Is true of assisted reproductive technology as well as. Uh, if anything, with the advent of more laws on assisted suicide, the vision of the unencumbered self seeking to write the last chapter of his or her story without regard to not just attachments to others, but the downstream consequences to vulnerable communities. That's a dominant narrative that is picking up steam, it seems to me, in American law and politics.
4: If I could jump in, uh, uh, Carter, for a second to add to what you had to say. I didn't read Alan Jacobs' piece, so I'm not exactly sure what he's saying, but I, I think that there may be something to that in the sense that radical individualism is not something that ordinary people can fully sustain for long. And in the literature of totalitarianism, this is one of the things that leads to totalitarianism. When people, and Hannah Arendt says this in her book, The Origins of Totalitarianism. When individuals feel like they're alone and alienated from institutions, from, um, from the things that give them a sense of social solidarity, from their churches, from their histories, and so forth, uh, that they don't feel free. Ultimately, they have to worship something. And this is where you get uh, cult-like political, uh, political theories and uh, religious cults coming in and offering deliverance from radical individualism. This is where the Bolsheviks came in. This is where the Nazis came in. And this, I believe, is where a lot of these social justice warriors on campus are coming in with their credibly moralistic and severe uh, ideologies, because they are telling amorphous, atomized, uh, rootless individuals who are young people who are so anxious because of their rootlessness they're giving them a ready-made identity and cause and sense of purpose. So in that sense, maybe uh, expressive individualism is going away, but it's not being taken up by a a sort of authentic individualism, but rather something ersatz and pre-made.
0: Let me uh, uh, encourage our other panelists, if you want to jump in, please do so at at, at any Yes, point.
3: I'd like to jump in, if I could, on that uh, last point. Uh, I think the pastor is right when he speaks about the disappearance of the sturdy, rugged individualism that we associate with American traditions, uh, the willingness to stand up and be counted, uh, and I think when we use the term expressive individualism, we're talking about something entirely different a withdrawal into the self and the preoccupation with the self that often is quite uh compatible with uh, conformity and with suppressing individualism of the first type
0: okay um mariana uh, orlandi mariana are you there can you introduce ourselves and ask? yes her?
7: Yes, thank you, uh, Professor Munoz, i uh, Mariana Orlandi, I'm the um, Associate Director at the Austin Institute for the Study Family and Culture. Uh, I am sort of intimidated by the audience that we have here, in even asking this question, but it has, maybe it's just a rephrasing of something that was already said, maybe something that Professor Glendon wanted out now. but it's a question for Carter and is, um, so um, In comparing Europe and the United States on these issues, it seemed uh, to me until a certain point that the philosophical um, background was very very relevant. And I could see that in the abortion jurisprudence. But then something happened on the euthanasia and assisted suicide uh, front that seemed just to uh, reject all those assumptions of how relevant it was because it Germany, I think, was the latest in speaking of a right to to commit suicide, and so to phrase something in a way that was very much, um, I think, up until a few years ago, we would have agreed, it was much more an American way of saying it. So, how come? Um, or and and another question is: Does this expressive individualism could you see it develop in different ways because of the different? Um, Structure of government and the way individuals think of powers uh, as citizens of the US or of uh, a European country.
2: Well, thank you, Mariana. It's nice. First of all, it's nice to see you, and we're excited that you're in the United States now and working in Austin. That's wonderful. Um, here's one thing that is an encouraging point. And, and I think the two instances not that long ago involving the two babies, Charlie Gard and Alfie Evans, who were severely disabled children, whose parents were struggling against uh, the hospitals and local authorities in the United Kingdom. Parents wanted to pursue different pathways of treatment for the children, and the hospitals and the local governments were taking, and the courts in particular, were taking a very different point of view. And this is, um, in England and America are, uh, seem a lot more alike on these kinds of questions of individualism to me than the, than the continent. Um, but I was encouraged by at least the Italian response, or at least what I took to be Italian. Maybe I'm conflating the sort of the the Holy See with the rest of Italy. But there was a kind of there was a kind of reaction. It seemed to me in the end of life decision making context, where the argument was being made in the UK that if it's not possible to restore these children to a state that we wish them to be in, if they're not capable, forget the question about whether or not they're imminently dying. Bracket that. The question is even if they're not imminently dying, the the courts took the view that if it's not possible to restore these children to the level of cognitive functioning that's appropriate to expressive individualism, um, then I didn't quite put it that way, but they said to sort of, you know, if they regain their cognitive capacity for conceptual thought and to be able to make choices in their own right, then we should discontinue life-sustaining measures, even if they're not imminently dying. And there was a reaction to that, but at least I took on the continent that was kind of adverse i mean especially in italy people said that's not that's not the right way to think about the role of parents that's not the right way to think about diagnosis and treatment of a person that you don't try to imagine them as you wish them to be but rather treat the embodied living being in your presence as the patient that he or she is and but i will say the counterpoint to that is is the is the assisted suicide issues that have arisen in italy uh, i remember the um the cases from from years ago coming out of LECO and the other cases where where it, it sounded an awful lot like if we can't restore this person to the level of sapience that we think that is appropriate to define you as a person, then we should, even if you're not imminently dying, discontinue and withdraw all life sustaining measures. And that that's a that's a negative counterpoint to the optimistic story that I just sketched out. But that's that's one point of contrast between the two between the two jurisdictions that I, I think is responsive to what you're
8: asking about.
4: I'm going to jump in real quick, Carter, and mention how strange it has been this year to see how American popular culture obsessions have become global popular culture obsessions. I mean, this has been happening for a long time, but the whole Black Lives Matter movement went from being something that was just in America to sweeping across Europe. And uh, I think that there must be uh, some something extraordinary going on here with the, the global village that the Internet is. Taking these American pop culture phenomena and spreading them very quickly and um, in, a, in a very disruptive way to Europe, and I don't know where else around the world th- these these protests happened, but I mean the, the, it just really underscores how technology and this con- connectivity we have uh, amplifies America's cultural hegemony in these cases, and I I think it's if I were European, I would be deeply worried about it.
0: Okay, Mar- I think
2: I feel I think Marianne had a comment. Uh, she's muted right now, but I think she wants to This is her bailiwick. Marianne if you could unmute. Sorry. Yourself. Yes no, there you I go. Had a
3: Quick reaction to Marianne's question. Nice to see you Marianna uh, About the differences from country to country and there are differences um, And uh, many of the most shocking developments in uh, bioethics are we are seeing in western europe and that if you remember a few years ago, to the degree that uh, a couple of atheist philosophers, uh, Habermas and uh, Pera, wrote books saying uh, that the loss of the Christian heritage, and by the way, what spurred Habermas to write about this was biological engineering and the instrumentalization of human life. And he said that he worried about whether uh, we could continue to live out our liberal values if we take away the Christian base on which they are they rest. And you see this discussion much more in Europe than you see here. Uh, and so I, I think there are very real differences from country to country in that respect. And so it would be interesting maybe for somebody to trace... Uh, the evolution of the law with the degree of secularization in these places.
0: Okay, we have a number of people uh, with questions and we're gonna try to get to as many as possible. Um, I wanna get a student question in here. Uh, Nick Holmes, Nick, can you uh, unmute yourself and introduce yourself?
9: Yes, hello, Um, I am Nicholas Holmes. I am a senior um, studying political science and history. With a minor in constitutional studies, um, first I just want to thank all of you on the panel for speaking today. It's been a pleasure listening to you all, and an honor to get to to ask you a question. Very distinguished um, panel, indeed. Um, so my question kind of actually ended up kind of flowing, I think, um, in somewhat similar veins to kind of how the the conversation of the last question um, uh, kind of um, flowed in the end. But I was wondering with kind of the decline of religion um, in the West over the past I mean, half century or so, um, kind of correlating with the the rise of this expressive individualism and the decline of value put on the body, whether um, you as a, as a panel believe that um, kind of a revaluation of the body within bioethics and kind of a reversal of individualism can occur. Um, as secularism remains kind of predominant and as religion continues to decline in the United States and in the, the rest of the West, um, or whether as I think Mr. had somewhat acknowledged um, in one of his comments, there can maybe be a bit of a coalition formed with maybe a kind of groups on the left that might not be quite as religious, but still arrive at somewhat similar conclusions. So basically the, the, the fundamental question I have I guess is, um, can, can this trend be reversed as religion c- continues to decline? Or basically, does a revival of Christianity in the West need to occur before kind of these other changes in bioethics can take place? Thank you.
2: Yeah, thanks for the question, Nick. That's a big question, of course. Um, and I, I think... Well, I mean, for one thing, I, I, I'm not sure that religious fervor and sense of, and this, is, and this is, I think, picks up what Rod was saying. I don't think it actually declines. I think it just shifts. I think it's like conservation of energy. I think people become, they worship other things. Uh, they worship, the, and the and the expressive individualism is effectively the worship of, of the self, right? The unencumbered self and the dreams and plans that one creates and the future that, that one pursues, um, regardless of how one sits embedded in community, family, culture, and so forth. Um, so, I mean, is the the question being, you know, it, can the can the kind of Christian sensibilities of selfless love and love of neighbor, uh, you know, can, can it persist as a as a counterweight to the sort of expressive individualism in the decline of actual religious observance? And I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that um and it seems to me you know i'd I'd be interested in hearing what marianne and others say about other nations experiences it's not clear to me and i don't know enough sociologically about where the massive growth within religion is in those areas in which it's growing and that might tell us something interesting about about the direction that we can head in and 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 to try to stanch the 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 tide of of, uh, of expressive individualism and the corrosive effects that it has on these fundamental questions involving um, the most vulnerable people among us.
0: Any of the other panelists want to get on on this? Yeah,
5: i will qualified to speak. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I'm not always qualified, but um, I, I think one. I mean, at first, I totally agree with Carter that it's a mistake. I think to sort of just frame this in terms of secularism versus religion um, and. You know, I I think that there is lots of religious energy sort of circulating in Western culture and sort of looking for a way to condense into an actual sort of coherent worldview. Um, You know, I mentioned Gnosticism earlier as a sort of, you know, a theological way of thinking about expressive individualism. And I think that's been very powerful. I think, though, it's worth considering, you know, you can imagine a world in which you can imagine a world that came to many of the same policy conclusions as the expressive individualist that ended up justifying them in communalist or communitarian terms, right? I mean, I, I think that, you know, and uh, to, to be reductionist, you could call this like a pagan worldview, right? That says, you know, well, euthanasia is good, not as an expression of sort of perfect self-determination, but as a, you know, reality that as we age, we need to sort of embrace death. You know, I mean, it's like the the movie Midsummer, right, uh, where it's you know the sort of the the pagan cult where people throw themselves um, off a cliff at age seventy two or something, right? I mean, that's that's a kind of that's a vision that's sort of communalist and communitarian and focused on the body, but sort of radically different from the the Christian tradition. And, you know, that, so I think that that's a possibility that sort of, you know, the, instead of the Benedict option, the midsummer option is a possibility sort of worth keeping in mind that it's not clear that we'll always have this dynamic of a kind of residual Christianity, making one set of claims and a kind of expressive individualism making another, you could have some transformation that desecularizes Western society in various ways, but doesn't lead to you know, that, that sort of reverts to a more, uh, reverts to a view of human beings as embodied creatures, but doesn't come to Christian conclusions about what you do with that embodiment.
2: Yeah. Um, just, so,
5: is it's, po- what, it's possible to justify abortion on more grounds than expressive individualism,
2: I guess. That's, that's true. Just one, one quick uh, ca- uh, footnote to what Ross was saying. If what you see in the Silicon Valley, among people who have religious sensibilities is an attraction to transhumanism. It's a kind of rejection of the body uh, in a comprehensive way that you can use technology to actually abstract one's cognitive principles and leave the body behind and adopt some other, uh, some other technologically enhanced body. Uh, So, so it's, and it's, if you read the transhumanists, it's very, very much a religion. It's not, it's not just, It's not just a secular response to human limits and natural limits.
4: Well, I would say too, Carter, that we can't forget what Christian Smith has said most powerfully, that religion in America has been completely overtaken by what he calls moralistic therapeutic deism, which is just sort of God is in heaven, he wants us to be happy and nice, and that's about it. Uh, Smith said that that is across every religion. So we can't look at Christianity as any sort of bulwark against expressive individualism, when in fact Christianity and other religions in this culture have been colonized by expressive individualism. I would say, uh, I'll end by saying that this the book I mentioned earlier, Alexandria, has a pagan uh, religious order as the one who is holding onto the truth in this a millennium into the post-apocalyptic future. They are pagans, but it takes a religion to hold them together. Whatever the religion they've been able to cobble together out of the ruins to keep them uh, strong against transhumanism, which is the big temptation there. So uh, yeah, it, it could, it may not be Christianity, whatever. Uh, you know, I hope that there's a Christian revival, but it can't be the sort of expressive individualistic Christianity that we have now. It may end up being another religion, but it has to be a religion that values the body.
0: I have to compliment uh, Rod. He's the first panelist in uh, the program's history who has a brand new book and yet has, is hawking someone else's book. <laughs> Richard Darflinger, you're you're up next. Sure. Mute um, yourself and introduce yourself.
8: Oh, am I, am I heard now? Hi. Uh, actually, this uh, this dovetails well with what Carter just said about the transhumanists. When I worked for uh, Catholic Bishops Conference in public policy, I was always looking for what's the next issue where people are not dug in yet in their polar polarities Uh, and and uh, that's how we passed some of the things we did manage to pass in federal law like a ban on patenting human embryos you know and the Democrats would say who would want to patent a human embryo then the biotech industry would react to our proposal and they'd find out that some people did but uh, they felt kind of yucky about it and we passed it I think uh, from from the experience I just had taking part in a webinar on human genetic engineering that is still one of those issues uh there's there's concern about especially germline human gene editing uh from the united nations which says it's probably contrary to human dignity and that's a very rich uh field there well if it's against human dignity is that grounded in human nature and why is there something givenness about human nature that is not subject to our autonomous aspirations. Uh, C.S. Lewis pointed out back in the 1940s that this is the ultimate self-contradiction of autonomy because what it means is that a few people in one generation are going to end up imposing their imperfect ideas about what the perfect human is on every future generation for the rest of time. And there's been a lot of concern about getting the maximum Maximum uh, diversity, including theology. even the scientists are saying we need theologians too, commenting on the dangers here. My, uh, my favorite movie on this is not Brave New World, because people just don't, they do not connect with a totalitarian society that would do things that way. But Gattaca, where the buildup of individual autonomous decisions about giving your child the best possible start in life becomes a kind of social pressure to conform in which the unenhanced, uh, which are called the faith births, are uh, are kept down in the low-paying jobs. And the, uh, the enhanced end up feeling suicidally depressed if they don't live up to what they've been engineered to do because their very nature was chosen for that. I think this is a very rich area for people from... Uh, From a richer idea of human nature and human dignity to comment on, and I just wanted to uh, propose that for any comments you may have.
2: Richard, it's so good to see you. You're all the way on the other side of the continent these days. I'm so happy. For those of you who don't know, Richard Durflinger is is the was the represented the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops on pro-life issues for many, many years. There's no one who knows more about those issues than Richard does. No one who's done more for uh, human dignity and the common good that Richard has. I don't want to embarrass you, Richard, but it's all true. Uh, and I'm so happy that you're uh, participating. Um, you know, Richard. I so so yeah. We, it, people aren't dug in, people are pretty dug in on abortion. Uh, I found, and maybe you would disagree. At least in the you know in the struggles in the state level in Massachusetts and elsewhere, people, there still were the possibility of interesting coalitions around assisted suicide. People who uh, left and right coalitions. People who who oppose assisted suicide not because they, in principle, think that a person shouldn't be able to make that final sort of existential choice, but out of concern for the downstream consequences of the most vulnerable populations—the elderly, uh, the disabled, people, and, and you know, people who are in uh, discreet and stigmatized minorities that are socially disfavored—and so it, I agree with you, and I think that uh, maybe maybe the traction is is less than it used to be, but assisted suicide and end of life decision making it seems to me to be a fruitful area. One problem about human dignity, though, that we, Marianne, will remember from the President's Council on Bioethics and from her work on the, you know, other international instruments, uh, Declaration on Human Rights, and that is that it's a great phrase, you know, human dignity, and it does have content and it means a lot. But when we were at UNESCO, (laughs) we were negotiating the Universal Declaration on Bioethics and Human Rights, Uh, you'd see the the derivative title from the, the famous one. And Uh, they took a poll of all 192 countries that were negotiating, and human dignity was by far the number one principle that everybody was excited about and would get behind. But then the moment people started talking about what its source was and what its content was, everything would, you know, would would fall apart, which isn't to say that we shouldn't fight for a correct understanding of human dignity. And I disagree with those who have said that dignity is a useless or stupid concept uh, as in in the early 2000s in bioethics. But Um, but I think it's important. I think it's important what you said, Richard, about the possibility of, of interest, making headway and interesting new questions about about which people aren't dug in. And then secondly, it's also really important to point out something that our libertarian friends miss sometimes, which is to say that private ordering that is oppressive and dehumanizing and dominating can be just as dangerous and problematic as state-sponsored, uh, uh, state-sponsored violations in that, in that form. And I'm thinking of eugenics. I'm thinking about State-sponsored eugenics, everybody agrees, is problematic, and we should resist that. But there is the reality of private eugenics. Some people even resist the the, the terminology. Well, it can't be if it's private ordering; it can't be eugenics. But you see that with the the uh, the, the campaign to eliminate all unborn children with Down syndrome, uh, as well as other uh, persons with disabilities.
5: I, I just just quickly just to just to jump in. I mean, I I think that. I think that it is very likely that the dilemmas in Western countries end up being more like the dilemmas of Gattaca than the dilemmas of totalitarianism. At the same time, I think, to the extent that there are sort of actual sustained breakthroughs in genetic engineering in all of our lifetimes, it's quite likely that you will get kind of, you will get an actual totalitarian project along those lines in the People's Republic of China. Um, and I think, you know, relative to 10 or 15 years ago, I would say I'm less concerned about the Gattaca future and more concerned about um, the sort of, you know, totalitarian led genetic engineering um, coming out of a sort of a powerful and increasingly sort of managed and controlled China. And obviously, you know, things may change again in 10 years, but that's just something worth keeping in mind that to, to the extent that China has moved back towards totalitarianism, even as it's, you know, sort of made particular pushes at the frontiers of CRISPR and other technologies that that scenario is very much, um, in play for the next 50 to hundred years.
4: And you see too, Ross, I mean, what are we going to do when our leaders are confronted with, you know, the, the genetic engineering equivalent of the missile gap? You know we're going to be facing a a tremendous national security pressure to catch up to China. You see what I mean? And where potentially,
5: you- although again, to be to be op- more optimistic, right? I mean, I think to the extent like it's harder to for people to see what's wrong in the West with certain kinds of genetic engineering when it's practiced in this sort of voluntary seeming way, and so to the extent that it becomes associated with sort of centralized state control there might also be opportunities for saying well that's you know we want to define ourselves against the chinese race to build a superman and you know we want to do it the the you know the old-fashioned faith birth way
0: I'm not sure how optimistic that really is, for us, but... Um, well, it's uh,
5: just, it's Khan, Noonie, and Singh, and the, you know, the eugenics wars that Star Trek predicted. I mean, you know, it's all been, it's all been prophesied, and it shall come to pass.
2: <laughs> this, yeah, is yeah. Seti, this is SETI Alpha Five. <laughs>
5: we, we are running short of time, but I have um, uh, uh,
0: promised two other people that they could ask their questions, and I, I'm gonna get my own question in as well. So uh, Patrick Graff is a graduate student um, here at Notre Dame, and then Philip Sloan is, faculty member. Uh, Patrick and Philip, I might ask you to both unmute yourself and both of you ask your questions so we can make sure to get them both in and then we'll turn both questions over. So uh, Patrick first and then Philip.
9: Hi everyone, yes, uh, thanks so much for this discussion. I really enjoyed it. I'm a PhD student here in sociology of education and I was curious about what you would think the consequences of uh, this view of particular human vulnerability would mean for the organization of K-12 schooling. Uh, I know, Ross, you've done a lot on elite institutions or what might need to change about elite schooling um, so that this could be more widely disseminated uh, and thought about. Um, But I I think particularly about uh, the ways in which we spend a lot of time uh, figuring out, trying to figure out how to keep kids away from experiencing other people's kids' vulnerabilities uh, in our school system.
0: And thank you, Patrick. And let me ask Philip, uh, Philip Sloan, Professor Sloan, could you uh, have uh, ask your question? Unmute yourself.
4: I, I think I, I am unmuted. Can you hear me? Yep. Yeah. Uh, Carter, I think there's just one one question. We've talked so much about expressive individualism, and I don't, I'd like to see more discussion in grasping a, a kind of anthropology about the great impact of the sciences in the same period. I mean, I think the The genetic revolutions of the 1950s and 60s have created so many of these questions and also led to a very reductive picture that people have of themselves as determined by genes and and so forth. And I think that that there's a great reconstructive project that needs to be done in order to be able to take into account this new science without involved in this great reductionism that I think we see around us, which I think is really at the root of so many of these bioethical questions. At least I'd like to see your comments on that.
2: Yeah. So I'll I'll respond to Phil first. Um, Phil, I completely agree with you. And I've learned so much from Phil about the history and philosophy of science, and especially as it relates to this kind of reductive materialism as an ideology that accompanies scientific development, but it certainly doesn't necessarily follow from it as an inexorable matter. But One of the weird ironies of this is that at the same time, you have this this emphasis on freedom, free cognition, the freedom of the will to pursue the course of one's own choosing, while at the same time, a lot of the same folks are embracing a a vision of of hard determinism that in fact, free will isn't possible, right? We're all just sort of, you know, atoms and fields of force or everything is determined by, you know, physical laws and past states of the world. I mean, there's a there's a real contradiction there, and um, and it would be useful at least in the first instance to underscore and amplify the contradiction to try to have a conversation about, you know, both of these ideologies—the one of the sort of the, the free and unencumbered will, atomized will—and the totally reductive, all-determined, you know, mechanistic account. They're both they're both highly problematic. They both lead to serious violations of you know, the, the vulnerable and the weak and the dependent and they, and, but they're frequently held and they they literally directly contradict one another, but they're held frequently by the very same thinkers. And so it'd be, it's valuable. And you know, I, there's not a, a way to do justice to the, to reconcile the issue or to, to, to point a way forward. And I've written a lot about the notion of reductive materialism as it, as it involves policy and political decision-making and this sort of listen to the science. I believe in science, uh don't don't infect science with politics and how incoherent that is when you understand science and politics and thanks to your uh writing as well phil but i think i think it's worth noting this very strange contradiction between embracing reductive mechanism and the determinism that comes with it and this kind of emphasis and really fetish for the free and unencumbered will as definitive of the human being
5: um I'll, I'll say something quickly about the, about the first question. I mean, I think two, two things could be said. One is that there's no question that the, the structure of meritocracy, this, you know, the sort of funneling of people with particular talents into self-segregated environments increasingly dominated by the manipulation of symbols and digital technology sort of feeds into Gnosticism in, in all kinds of ways. Um, the, And therefore, a project of sort of deconstructing the meritocracy could, in theory, also be a project of sort of re-encountering embodiment that, you know, there's a sense in which, you know, the, I mean, this is, again, a case study in how different things play out, right, but like, sort of Walt Whitmanian views of America are more embodied, right, in, in various ways that sort of old school, sort of pantheistic vision of democracy than some of the sort of, well, some of what Carter was just talking about, for instance. The The only caveat I would throw out that I think is is useful as kind of a counterpoint to this discussion is that in American education right now, there are many ways in which people with disabilities are treated much better than they were fifty or seventy-five or hundred years ago. In periods when, philosophically speaking, the view of you know the view views were often maybe closer to um, the the kind of at least from my perspective the theological truth, right? Um, and so you you know the, it's both it's both the case that America as a society has become harsher on people who exist you know in sort of these edge states in the womb you know in you know with with the in late in life and so on but also the case that you know if you're someone who is born with down syndrome or born you know who has is autistic has a you know learning disability all kinds of ways there are all kinds of places in which um society in different ways treats those people better than it did in the past and that's worth keeping in mind in these discussions too
2: and just one footnote to that one of the things that i think drives this or at least the people who have pioneered these wonderful accommodations and these ways of of caring for people with disabilities ultimately end up being extremely powerful elite people who happen to have children with disabilities (laughs) and that 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 drives a kind of emotional connection and shows the, the the formative role that parenthood plays and you know you stop pursuing you know, the brass ring as you designed it in your interior yourself, and you start thinking about creating a world for your children.
0: We, we are just about out of time. Uh, Carter, we, we've had a number of other people raising hands and a number of uh, questions submitted uh, through the chat uh, function, I'm, and I'm sorry we didn't get to them all. So very good questions. Um, some of the questions have uh, concerned public policy. Um, uh, let me just sort of generalize uh, from them. Uh, if um, uh, abstracting from uh, uh, a constitutional uh, um, precedent being overturned, just just what we could do now. Are there certain public policies that you would be particularly keen to see implemented um, in the here and now? What are the one or two public policies that would yeah. lead, lead us to a healthier, a more embodied uh, bioethics?
2: So, I mean, I, I, I'll, I'll take the example of assisted reproductive technologies, because that's an area in which there really is no legal mechanism to protect vulnerable people who are seeking care uh, in terms of infertility treatments, even from, from sort of predatory folks in the world of, of, of IVF clinics, but also even from their own vulnerability and their own decision-making, making choices about how they're going to become pregnant or to bear a child that might have negative downstream consequences, both for their, their, their own safety and well-being, but also in to, to take the easiest example, safety and well-being of their children i think it's as we argued in the president's council on bioethics the 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 easiest place to to do something is in the context of assisted reproductive technology because it is characterized by the absence of law so if people could think carefully about what we owe to children think about the doctor patient relationship think about um, the nature of parenthood and the demands and the requirements obligations and privileges that go along with that and to try to come come up with some I mean the president's council on bioethics we had 17 people who disagreed very strongly about fundamental issues including about the moral status of the embryo and yet we were able to come up with some overlapping um proposals to try to uh to try to protect both dignitary concerns as well as sort of basic health and safety concerns so i would i would encourage people to look at the president's council on bioethics report reproduction responsibility for some of the some of the proposals in there, I think, would be easy to get done. And you don't have, you're not in the teeth of a constitutional precedent that has to be overturned or severely modified in order to get anything done, which is the case in the abortion context.
0: I want to thank our, our panelists, Marianne Glendon, Roger Dreher, Ross Douthit, uh, for this wonderful conversation. Um, I, I've, I've read the book uh, over the last few days. It's Harvard University Press book. Don't let that intimidate you. It's Carter's beautifully written, uh, very accessible, uh, as uh, Ross Douthat said, uh, if you're interested, I just read the chapter on abortion, just interested in a uh, wonderfully clear overview of the law, I recommend uh, the book uh, wholeheartedly. Um, we, uh, here at the Constitutional Studies Program, we uh, want to uh, encourage our students to think profoundly and clearly and deeply about the most important things. And uh, that's exactly what this conversation has been. So uh, thank you to the panelists. Thank you, Professor Sneed. Thank you all. Uh, everyone joining us. and. Um, Carter, next time I see you, we have a little gift here for you. So. Oh, look
6: at that. Look at that How too. wonderful. It's a picture yeah. of Rod.
4: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, hold it up again. I want
2: to yeah. see
0: you there. <laughs> well, Marianne, Ross, and Rod, you'll be on Carter's, Carter's wall here.
2: Yeah. Well, I, I, have a, I already have a collection of images of all of them on my wall, but that's a new one. That'll be great.
0: <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for, for joining us. Uh, make sure you uh, check out uh, the, the Nicholas Center. Ethics and culture for their events, and of course, Con Studies here at ConStudies.nd.edu. Uh, we hope to see you all again soon, and uh, thank
2: you again for joining us. Thank you all so much. Thanks. Congratulations, Carter. Very good. Thanks, Bill.